Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Beverly Weintraub titled Wings of Gold, the Story of the First Women Naval Aviators, published by Lions Press, a division of the Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Beverly Weintraub is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and has written for the New York Daily News and the Washington Post. She served for 10 years on the Daily News editorial board, and she shared the 2007 Pulitzer for editorial writing for an in-depth investigation into the illnesses afflicting 9-11 first responders, and is executive editor of The 74, a K-12 education news site. Beverly Weintraub, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could get us started by telling us how this book came about. Well, in 2019, um, Captain Rosemary Mariner, who was a naval aviator, uh, passed away of ovarian cancer. She was the first woman to fly a Navy fighter jet and the first to command an aviation squadron and a leader in opening opportunities for women in the military. She was one of six pioneering women who were the first women officially brought into military flight training as an experiment in the early 1970s by the Navy. And besides Captain Mariner's achievements, they would become the first woman to solo a Navy aircraft, the first female hurricane hunter, the first female Navy flight instructor, the first pregnant military pilot, and a plaintiff in a federal class action lawsuit challenging a longstanding ban on women in combat. Now at her funeral, the Navy did the first ever all woman missing man flyover and that event made national news. Now I'm a journalist and a pilot and one of my former daily news colleagues um, works in the opinion section of the Washington Post. So if something happens involving women in aircraft, I'll get an email, would you write something? So when the flyover happened, happened, um, I was asked to write an op-ed for the Post, which I did. And a few months later, I had an email from an editor at Lions Press who said she had seen the column and they thought it might make for an interesting book. What did I think? So the story really found me and I was thrilled and a little bit astonished that the women and their families were willing to trust me to tell their stories. What a, what a lucky coincidence, right? Like these, you know, these things at all that take place at the same time. That's, that's terrific. So, so what are wings of gold? So wings of gold are an insignia. It's a pair of golden wings with an anchor at the center uh, that designates a naval aviator. And it is, the naval aviators are distinct from all other military pilots um, because they land on aircraft carriers. This is the thing that makes them different. Um, And to have those golden wings is a particular point of pride uh, for any Navy pilot. In part one, uh, the book traces early aviation. So what drew women to aviation in that early 20th century, that early part of the use of airplanes? Well, the attraction for women was really the same as it was for men. Aviation was something new and different and daring. It represented adventure and freedom. And for women, the opportunity to break out of traditional societal roles. Um, Now, women had been involved in aviation since the 18th century, flying hot air balloons, particularly in France. Uh, The first woman to solo an airplane did so in 1908. The first American woman to get her pilot's license uh, was Harriet Quimby in 1911. She was also the first woman to fly the English Channel. Um, Before and during World War I, the military saw the potential of the airplane and commissioned um, airplane manufacturers, including the Wright brothers, to supply aircraft for the war effort. So after the war, there were huge numbers of surplus military airplanes available, really, really cheap. So men and women looking for adventure could buy an airplane and become barnstormers. They would tour the country, putting on air shows, doing tricks with their airplanes, going out and walking on the wings and playing tennis while the airplane was flying and um, selling airplane rides. Um, Charles Lindbergh got his start that way, among others. And for many people, those air shows was the first time they'd ever seen an airplane. So especially for women, 
that freedom played into the theme of the roaring 20s of independence and adventure. Women had just gotten the vote, they could drive, they could smoke, and now they could fly too. And this is dangerous business. I mean, you tell a lot of really fantastic stories that are, you know, pretty hair raising about the different things that could go wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what are the dangers that these pilots faced? Well, early on in the very early days of aviation, aircraft designers really didn't understand aerodynamics or what the physical limitations of any airplane were and why. So there was a lot of trial and error and error meant crashing. Um, the Wright brothers on their first attempt, the last flight of the day, they crashed the airplane. It happened a lot. Um, there was no standardization of the controls, so moving the controls in one way on one airplane could have the complete opposite effect on another airplane. And there were also like no safety features like seatbelts. Um, so Harriet Quimby, among other pioneers, she got her license in 1911, flew the English Channel, and in 1912 she was killed in a crash. And unfortunately, that happened to a lot of these early pioneers. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it was due to equipment failures and, you know, just there, there were a variety of different causes. Huh? But they didn't even understand that if you pitched the airplane up too, too high, the wings would stop generating lift and you were going down. They didn't understand just the basic mechanics of what makes an airplane fly. But by World War II, things had improved a lot with the technology, I suppose. So yeah, and World absolutely. War II was a very important turning point right. uh, for the women pilots. So can you talk a little bit about how, about how the role that women played in World War II as well? Absolutely. I mean, once the military got involved in World War I, um, the technology came along pretty fast. So by World War II, the airplane was an indispensable weapon of war. And by that point, the United States was the largest producer of aircraft in the world. Um, when the, the U.S. entered the war, somebody had to fly all those airplanes from the factories to the air bases to either send them to where um, men were going to be trained to fly in combat or to send them overseas, but all the men were already overseas flying combat. Um, so two aviation pioneers, Nancy Love Harkness and Jacqueline Cochran, persuaded um, General Hap Arnold that the thing to do was to recruit women pilots to fly for the army as ferry pilots, which had been done in Britain for a number of years before. And those American women became known as the WASP, the Women's Air Force Service Pilots. So they acted as ferry pilots. They towed banner targets for um, men doing gunnery practice to shoot at with live ammunition. And they were also flight instructors for men, especially for planes that were considered difficult to fly. They would make sure that there was a woman flight instructor because well, if a woman could fly it, how difficult could it be really? Eventually the WASP would fly some 60 million miles and 77 types of aircraft, every war plane the United States produced. But with the war winding down, they were summarily sent home and their service records were classified and buried. So they did not get the recognition they deserved for decades. And really until the service academies started to admit women in the 1980s and the Air Force made a big deal. We're going to have the first women to fly. And these grandmas looked around and said, wait a minute, what about us? Um, now, the Navy pioneers in my book, these six women, um, considered the WASP their heroes, and they knew very well what their stories were and what had happened to them. And they were determined that whatever happened with this experimental program they were in, what had happened to the WASP was not going to happen to them. And how about testing new planes and things? Did they do a lot of testing of the, of, the, of the WASP? Or, you know, the, during World War II, when there was, a, you know, the new jets and things, with those were, they used women for that as well, right? Yeah, they used women um, to some degree. Yeah, the WASP were, were test pilots as well. And so was the Navy open to or welcoming to women who were interested in careers after World War II to stay in the military? Um, yeah, actually, women had been serving in the Navy since 1908. I don't know if people know that. Um, initially... Um, they were in the nursing corps, 
Um, in World War II, there were about 90,000 women who signed up for what became known as the WAVES, the Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service. And the Bureau of Aeronautics in particular, which was new, was especially open to having members of the WAVES um, serve um, in their billets, not just in administrative and secretarial roles, which were traditionally what Navy women did, but they were mechanics, they were traffic controllers, they were weather experts, they were aircraft ground crew, and interesting, a lot of them trained as navigators. There were about a thousand who went through navigation school and most of them taught and evaluated pilots and navigators on the ground. But about 80 of them were official military air crew, the first women in the United States to be officially um, members of a military air crew because they were teaching and evaluating pilots airborne. And they actually flew some of them to and from Hawaii, the most dangerous type of flying, which was long trips over water with no landmarks. And Hawaii was technically a combat zone. So that's that's kind of an interesting side note to, um, and to where we're going, right? To where we're going in this conversation. Right, right. a little known that, opportunity for women. Right, with that issue, which being a main issue. And I just wanted to mention my mother-in-law was a wave. Was she? She, was a, she worked on code at the mm -hmm. Brooklyn Navy Yard. Oh. And she absolutely loved, loved being in the Navy. And uh, forever, she always displayed in her house, her photograph in her wave uniform was always, you know, prominently displayed in her house because she had such fond memories of that time of being a wave at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Wow. She absolutely uh, loved that time of her life. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. you now introduced, after, go ahead. Sorry. Okay. Now, after the war, what happened was that in 1948, the Women's Armed Services Integration Act did away with all the women's auxiliaries and brought Navy into the regular branches of the armed services, but there were tremendous restrictions on what they were allowed to do in the Navy. Women were limited to desk jobs. They weren't allowed to serve on ships. There were only a limited number who could attain the rank of captain. A woman could not be a commanding officer over men. And as in much of the military, pregnancy was caused for immediate dismissal. So those are just some of the restrictions. And those lasted until the 1970s when the story of the women in my book begins. Yeah, and it's interesting because the policies, um, they seem very arbitrary. In, in a lot of ways uh, through this time period until we get to, you know, the big hurrah here with mm -hmm. in your book, you know, sort of the climax of the story. But you also introduce us to a really interesting person who I never knew anything about, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt. Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Zumwalt? Zumwalt. Zumwalt. Yes. And uh, he's really important in your story. Can you explain his role in military policies and the impact on these women naval aviators? Sure. Um, Admiral Zumwalt was the youngest chief of naval operations in Navy history. He was also the youngest rear admiral in Navy history, which actually did not endear him very much to the more senior men who he leapfrogged over to become chief of naval operations. And when he took over in 1970, um, the Navy was having a huge crisis of personnel and morale. Um, the reenlistment rate was down to less than 10%. Um, the Navy was really out of step with the times. It had very rigid rules and regulations that many saw as antiquated, but you know, it's a seafaring branch with hundreds of years of tradition. They were not going to change. There were longstanding traditions that favored men of European descent, and there was widespread ingrained deep-seated racial discrimination that permeated every aspect of Navy life. Now in civilian society with the civil rights movement and the women rights movement and the youth counterculture, all those strictures were giving way, but the Navy was not changing and it was increasingly out of step. So Zumwalt's job was to find a way to change the culture to try to bring the Navy into the 20th century. And the mechanism he chose were what were called Z-grams, Z like Zumwalt, which were 121 messages from the Chief of Naval Operations directly to the fleet. And they addressed quality of life issues, small things like could Navy personnel ride motorcycles? They raised the check cashing ceiling. When could Navy personnel wear civilian clothing? Could men grow facial hair and sideburns without being punished? 
Hey, this um, was 1970. This was, well, this <laughs> was, was important. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, there were Zgrams um, calling out racial discrimination and designating specific officers in specific squadrons responsible for making sure that discriminatory practices were stopped and they would be personally liable if that did not happen. Um, in August 1972, um, ZGRAM 116, which is the important one in our story, was issued. It was titled Equal Rights and Opportunities for Women in the Navy. And it was a potential solution to a couple of problems. Among them was that um, everyone expected the Equal Rights Amendment to pass. And if that had happened, all those limitations on Navy women would have suddenly become unconstitutional. So the Navy needed to do something to change those. And the military draft was about to end. And the Navy was going to have to find a way to attract volunteers. So it had to do something about its unpopularity problem pretty quickly. Uh, two months after um, Z-116 was issued, um, Secretary of the Navy John Warner announced that flight training was one of those opportunities that would be open to women. Um, they really didn't have a plan for what we, how it was going to work. They didn't know if the women were going to get through. And if they did, they didn't really have a plan for how to integrate them into their first assignment, or if heaven forbid, they wanted another assignment after that or wanted to make a career out of that. There was really no plan. They just kind of threw these women in and just kind of see what would happen. Wow, yeah, and he's really an interesting, um, he's such an interesting, uh, makes such an interesting impact on, on military policy. And the, the idea of changing culture is so difficult uh, that, you know, he was really in a quite a difficult situation. Yeah. And when his star started to fade, all those um, admirals he had leapfrog over had it in for him. He had a bit of a, a bit of a rough time. Um, but one thing I found interesting was that, you know, I have a copy of his autobiography and the whole flight training program, which launched the careers of these six women and gave rise to generations of women being allowed to fly for their country to the best of their ability, just like men. It takes up like half a sentence in this autobiography. That was it. It was like not even a footnote in his life. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you it have was any just... I think it was just so much going on. And I think it was a response to a particular time and then the time passed and other things, other things came up. Yeah. And really important theme in this book is the issue of women in combat. Yes. And so can you talk about the controversies surrounding the idea of women in combat roles? Sure. Um, so in addition to the limitations imposed by the um, Women's Armed Services Integration Act, there were federal regulations that barred women from combat. Um, the Navy in particular had a kind of an interesting interpretation of um, the regulations that pertain to their branch. Um, the law said that women shall not be assigned to ships or aircraft if they have a combat mission. And the Navy interpreted combat mission to mean that it could be in combat at some time, not that it was in combat at that point. So for example, when Joellen Drag Osland, who was the first um, female helicopter pilot, got to her first billet in San Diego, she discovered that she wasn't allowed to fly out to ships with the rest of her squadron. You know, this was the primary job of a Navy helicopter pilot and she wasn't allowed to do it. So she couldn't do the job she was trained to do. She was being judged by the same standards as men who were being allowed to do that job. She couldn't advance in her career because she couldn't log flight time because she wasn't allowed to do those flights. And the Navy was denying itself the services of a pilot who had been trained at great public expense so after she would send letters up the chain of command and they would disappear, um, she ended up as a plaintiff in a federal class action lawsuit that did strike down part of the combat exclusion. And the judge in the case, um, John Sirica, whose name you might know from Watergate, he mentioned her specifically by name as a case study and why this made no sense. Um, it loosened things up a bit. Of course, it was federal law, so the only way it could actually be changed was through Congress. He didn't really have the authority, but um, things did change a bit. Um, she was ultimately the first woman to serve, woman pilot to serve shipboard. And there were some other ways of kind of chipping away at those restrictions. 
Um, so initially when these women started flight training, women weren't allowed to fly jets. That just didn't happen. It was not allowed. They got propeller planes or helicopters. But um, Rosemary Mariner, when she got to her first billet, her commanding officer was the first African-American skipper at Naval Air Station Oceana. And he saw parallels between what the African-American service members went through in integrating the military and the challenges that these women were going to have to overcome. And he became her mentor and he laid out for her that they had to network and they had to watch either other's back and document what happened and make sure that the opportunities that they were entitled to were not just sort of taken away or not offered. So when he needed jet pilots, he sent the names of all his junior prop pilots in for jet transition training, including hers, and made sure that she got to fly jets. Now she could not fly jets in combat and she was not allowed to carry or qualify along with the men. And this was one of, you know, three or four times when the guys she was training with, you know, the last thing they do is they fly out to the carrier and do their landings. And nope, she got sent home because women weren't allowed to do that. Um, but she did find a way to use and demonstrate the skills that male pilots, male jet pilots demonstrated in combat in a non-combat role. So she did research and development using those same skills and demonstrating that you know, women can fly jets just as well as men, even though she was not allowed in combat. But you know, it wasn't for a couple of decades um, until Congress gained the political will to actually change the law. And that when that happened, it was really um, in the 90s when the Gulf War um, broke out. Because at that, by that point, um, women were serving in the military in large numbers, and there were a lot of um, women military pilots, and they were flying support, like um, airborne air traffic control and flying tankers for refueling midair. And supposedly where they were stationed was a non-combat area, but they were being shot at, they were being wounded and killed, and they were being taken prisoners of war, even though they were not officially in a combat zone. And people were seeing this on TV in their living rooms, that this distinction between combat versus non-combat was really a distinction without a difference. Um, so it was a ground and it was, swell. And it was, be, it was an obstacle. Right. Absolutely. And it was such an obstacle for the careers of these women who wanted to be fully uh, you know, fully a member of the team, right? Absolutely. You know, um, it's so interesting too, like the, the whole uh, idea of this being sort of an, a uniquely sort of American problem, I guess, because, you know, you think about other examples around the world of women in Russia during World War II playing right, combat roles, mm -hmm. women in Israel being fully uh, integrated as well, I believe. I mean, I'm not a, a military expert um, by any stretch of the imagination, but mm -hmm. I do believe that it's varies from country to country. Absolutely. So, yes. You know, so it's interesting, you know, when you think just uh, along the kind of the context of, of history, um, how right. this had been, how this has become the tradition in the United States of women shouldn't fight in combat Right. Um, and, and there's actually a larger picture there because it's not just about combat. So when this finally got to Congress to put the question on the floor, should this combat exclusion be lifted or not? Um, there was a lot of politicking. There was a lot of lobbying, although they wouldn't call it lobbying for women in uniform because they weren't allowed to do that. Um, and there was this amazing back and forth. Um, on one side, there were active duty military women, including Captain Mariner, the WASP were there, their families were there and advocates were on one side. And the other side was Phyllis Schlafly and heads of organizations who were affiliated with hers, who had defeated the Equal Rights Amendment and were dragging out the same arguments against women in combat. It wasn't that they didn't want women in combat, they didn't want women in the military at all. And when you watch um, the Senate hearing that John Glenn presided over, and it's posted on C-SPAN, you can watch three hour, all three hours of it if you like, you can listen to the questions and the way the, um, the hearing is structured, echoing their talking points about motherhood and family and traditional values and women's supposedly inherent weaknesses versus arguments about equal opportunity and whether the military 
should be entitled to its choice of the best people for the job, regardless of what their gender was. And there's this amazing exchange in which um, General Merrill McPeak, who was the Commandant of the Air Force, tells Senator William Cohen that he would prefer a less qualified male pilot over a more qualified woman. And he knows it doesn't make any sense, but that's just how he feels. And this is how military policy was made. So the combat exclusion was eventually lifted after a fair amount of, um, of back and forth um, and, and many battles to come. Right, and you know, Phyllis Schlafly is really having quite a renaissance. <laughs> You know, she's been, you know, kind of featured in that Hulu series mm -hmm. and things. And um, when you really dig into her life, you realize that she's such a hypocrite because she was a Rosie the Riveter herself during World War II. Mm -hmm. um, and that the arguments that she made to defeat the ERA about women being drafted and 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 things like that were such... Um, scare tactics. And then when you look at the other side of things, which is, hey, a military career is a good career for the women who want mm -hmm. that. And, you know, you're putting a, you're, you're slamming the door in the face of somebody who can really make a difference in service. Right. And that was one of the key arguments that was twisted um, in this hearing, the women who want that rather than it being about an op opportunity for women who had that desire it became a referendum on mandatory service and forcing women to serve in foxholes, which was not what the question on the floor was about at all. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about your research process? You know, how did you, how were you able to find your sources? So it was a combination of, um, of online researching and, um, and networking. Um, I needed to find the women. I had no idea how to find them. Um, Captain Mariner's widower had given interviews and I was able to connect through with him through colleagues um, at NBC. But the other women, I didn't know where to find them. So I started emailing uh, veterans groups and one of them um, called Women Military Speakers put my query out on their listserv. And I got answers from Joellen Drag. I got answers from Jane o O'Day. And I got an answer from a woman named Mary Louise Griffin, who was in the second group of Navy female pilots after the program was stopped, reevaluated, and they decided, okay, they would continue. She was the second woman to qualify in a fighter jet. She's a linchpin to this female naval aviator veteran community. And she said, I've got an archive. Come visit me at my house and see my materials. We'll go through it. And we had a girls weekend with a retiree or admiral, which was not intimidating at all. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate in that so much had been written about these six women when the program started and with each milestone in their careers that the, the structure of the story had already been reported. So um, there's a database called ProQuest, which is um, free if you have a library card and a library system that participates, and many of them do. Um, so I was able to get a lot of the background material that way, but some of these stories they was like one paragraph and that was it. And I discovered, one thing I discovered was that a number of um, newspapers sold their archives to genealogy companies, I guess, because they want the obituaries. So like every paper in San Antonio, every paper in San Diego, which were key locations at various parts in the book, basically I had to join genealogy.com to get a look at the full news story as opposed to just um, one paragraph. Um, another thing I discovered that was extremely dismaying was that a large number of these historical photos don't exist anymore. They're gone. Um, in the 90s, when all these news organizations were going digital, they had to decide what was worth spending money on to scan. So large numbers of these historical photos, and I think we were talking before, and you were noting that especially um, those pertaining to women, um, were just deemed not important and they're gone. There's a picture in the book of Joelle and Drag. I'm standing in front of a, a, a T-34 um, military trainer in high heel boots and a miniskirt because it was 1971, 1972. And I found that picture, it's, a, it's terrible. It's a bad PDF of a bad microfiche of a newspaper story that was printed on cheap paper. 
And that's all there is. I contacted United Press International who took the picture and it was in every major paper in the United States. And I asked for permission to use the picture. They had no idea what I was talking about. As far as they were concerned, it never existed. Yeah. And, and doing that's the story that all of us deal with doing women's history and and trying to teach women's history, because if you want to uh, tell your students how to do this kind of work correctly, you have to have the access to the primary materials and yeah. or the interviews and the letters and the the um, the documents. And we really need a better process for preserving materials and for finding them. And, you know, I think that this is something that I've, I'm certainly encountering in my research. And I talk to other people who are doing research and we're all in the same boat that it's, it's part of the, uh, the dismissal of women who have done important things in society that, they are, that their materials are just not looked at as being worth saving. And it's, uh, it's a, like you said, very dismaying and shocking. And so, you know, kind of talking a little bit about women's history in general, you know, why do you think this story is important for women's history? Well, I think it's because to understand why things are the way they are now, you need to understand how they got here. I mean, many of the issues in the book, I think, are cyclical. And some of the same roadblocks that were facing the pioneers in my book are still issues now. So Jane O'Day, who was the first woman to fly the C-130 Hercules, not just the first Navy woman, the first woman, period. Um, when she got to her first billet in road to Spain, she was told there's only one bathroom and you're not allowed to use it. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what she did about that in a few minutes. <laughs> but last March, I went to the Women in Aviation International Conference and there was a little, you know, chat session with some of these, these pioneering um, aviators and some active duty um, female pilots. And they were asked, what is your biggest gripe? There's no women's bathroom in the hangar. Now, it doesn't seem like it should be a really difficult thing. And at this point, it's probably not deliberate exclusion, but it echoes its exclusion. Nonetheless, it sets the tone in 2022. You don't have a place to use the bathroom. It's ridiculous. And in fact, the issue of bathrooms um, in the 1980s was used as a deliberate excuse for keeping women off ships. They were the Navy orders came down that women were to be integrated into ships crews and officers who didn't want to just said well you know what we don't have any place to put a bathroom or quarters for women so we can't do it too bad yeah. um now was kind of an, another uh, present day echo of this um the faa a couple of months ago um put down a formal order that it was changing all the language in its official documentation to make it gender neutral I'm an airman. I'm not a man, but according to the FAA until several months ago, I was an airman. Uh, the impetus for this came from the drone industry because um, they went to the FAA and they said that they felt they were not getting all the qualified applicants that they could because the language used in the industry and in aviation regulations was discouraging of certain segments of the population. It, said, it sent a message that they were not welcome. So now we have that culture shift. We were talking about culture shifts before. Yeah. And, you know, the same thing with the, with the colleges, when colleges, uh, the, when the male only colleges began accepting women in the seventies, the, uh, the bathroom facilities are still a problem. I mean, I've been at places like Princeton for conferences and you go and you say, you know, where's the ladies room? You know, and and they direct you to <laughs> down four flights of stairs <laughs> around the other side of the building. They're in these really inconvenient places. And you can sort of see through the architecture um, of the buildings how women were given the message that, you know, you're marginalized. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not welcome yeah. here. Yeah. And, you know, they try, but they still don't quite get it. I mean, why did the Navy wait until last summer to roll out the first ever maternity flight suits when women have been flying in the Navy for 50 years? It took that long to figure out that 
women who are at their peak flying of flying careers are also peak childbearing age. They might want something to accommodate that. It took until 2021 for that to happen. Yeah. Why is the first woman to command an aircraft carrier named in 2021? Why did the Navy wait until two months ago to name the first uh, demonstration pilot for the Blue Angels, who was a woman? And by the way, she was one of the flyover pilots at Captain Mariner's funeral. And she's on the back cover of my book. Yes. Oh, that's is So this is someone who has made military history twice in the last three years. Yeah, that's that's great. You know, and, you know, the whole impact and the role of the institution of the military in society is fascinating to me. And so in my class, you know, we talk about the women's movement. We talk about the civil rights movement and how women's status changes in the 70s, 60s and 70s as a result of these social movements. And I really point out to my class that the integration of women into the military and the opening of the military academies up to uh, open to women candidates has made an enormous impact on society. And, you know, we've been talking sort of around this all this entire conversation about cult, how do you change culture? And, you know, with the Z grams, do you change it from top down, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's trying to change culture from top down with his his missives, his Z grams to everybody. Right. And it's uh, just ultimate, it really fascinates me, you know, how you really move the needle uh, for, for women. And when I see the number of women in Congress right now, it's the biggest class of, women in Congress as uh, elected representatives, and I look at their backgrounds, many of them are veterans. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think about that? Um, I think it's a really interesting observation. I think there's a lot to it. I mean, women traditionally are supposed to be a little bit demure and not express themselves forcefully. And the the military is the opposite of that. Women in the military, you are trained to be leaders and to take responsibility and to bring up people behind you. And military women are very visible. Um, One of the lessons that Captain Mariner learned from um, Commander Lambert, who was her CEO at Naval Air Station Oceana, was to model respect and to seek consensus, to talk to people and get a sense of what they're thinking which is really the opposite approach that many officers and politicians have traditionally taken. Um, So for them to take that training and that degree of confidence and then move into the political sphere, I think it makes it somewhat more comfortable. You've already sort of done that, so you know what to do. Um, And it puts women in a position to support other women. One of one of the um, one of the things going back to you know why do you need to know this history is that you know as with now the first woman to command an aircraft carrier there are still people who have to be pioneers and they still have to break barriers and they still have to be the first but knowing that people in the past have had similar challenges and have found ways to overcome them and have succeeded is really empowering. Um, for the people in the present and for the next generation. And firing. Yes. And, you know, if you want the country to have the choice of the best that is out there, they need to be visible and they need to be part of the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So another theme that runs through the book is, you know, the idea of the obstacles these women face and, uh, the different, even sabotage, you mentioned that earlier in the book about women and their planes being sabotaged and things by their- That happened to the worst, yes. Yeah. So talking about harassment is important, right? So that these pilots, can you talk a little bit about the things that the women pilots had to endure? Right. So it ran the gamut. I mean, they're all very quick to say that there were many men who were supportive, even men who didn't know them. And that was absolutely true. 
On the other hand, they were given the silent treatment. They were shunned. There was sexual harassment. There were flight instructors who would promise to give them a good grade if they would sleep with them. There were physical threats. There were physical assaults. Um, one of the women was in her quarters and the door opened and somebody threw in a live firecracker. And he had been given the key by the officer on duty just in case she had locked her door. He apologized a couple of decades later when they were both flying for a major US airline. Um, women might be given poor performance reviews or mediocre performance reviews. Um, and they didn't necessarily have one to have their, who had their back, which you know the men could count on having the support network. The men were, the women were pretty much on their own. They were never all in the same place at the same time. So they were dealing with these challenges alone. Um, little things like if they were on the radio and they in their airplane and they keyed their mic to talk to the tower and somebody would key his mic at the same time and step on the transmission so she couldn't get through. Um, little stuff like that. Um, Joelle and Oslin was sexually assaulted um, a couple of years before the tailhook uh, scandal broke um, by officers in her squadron. And basically, nothing happened to the perpetrators. Um, part of it was um, the Navy's fault because the women were not allowed to assume the full risk of the men. So they were inherently viewed as having second class status, not sharing the risks and responsibilities. And the women absolutely agreed with that, that they were not fully able to do the job because they weren't allowed. The men took it out on the women, not on the Navy. Um, but you know, this was this was a recurrent theme. And they were already probably looked at as second-class citizens because they were women. And then on top of that, you know, it's it's like a variety of everything from small microaggression kinds of things to big assaults and things. And right. you mentioned the tailhook. Can you talk a little bit about the tailhook scandal in case what? you know? People right. don't remember yeah. that. So tailhook refers to naval aviators who have carrier qualified. And you know, this was the point of pride. So there was this organization called the Tailhook Association, which was not officially military, but the Navy paid for its officers to attend and gave them time off to do this. And in 1991, the conference was held in Las Vegas. And it quickly devolved into three days of drunken debauchery in which scores of drunken junior officers lined the hallway in the Las Vegas Hilton and any woman who happened to be walking by was grabbed, groped, some were sexually assaulted. Um, it was a huge, huge mess. There was a huge cover up afterwards. Everybody denied everything. Um, eventually the Admiral in charge had to resign and several of the um, senior officers who had engineered the cover-up um, were forced out. But the perpetrators basically, as has happened with Joellen Oslin's attack, nothing really happened to them. Um, but the thing that set the tone, and this is what a couple of the women pointed out to me, was that this was about the time when the combat exclusion was really becoming up. It had been raised as an issue, but it really looked like it actually might change this time. And at the very beginning of a conference, um, there was a panel discussion. And one of the female pilots stood up and asked the admirals up on the dais when women would be allowed to fly tactical air, in other words, fly jets in combat. And the guys on the floor shouted her down with jeers and catcalls, and the admirals on the dais didn't do a thing. So that sent a message to the junior officers that they could basically do whatever they want and nothing was going to happen to them. And they were right. Mm. It was really covered in the press. I mean, I remember it being on the news uh, for a long time. It wasn't just yeah. covered, you know, it, it really got a, a, a good amount of run as a story. Right. I mean, there were a couple of waves of coverage because initially it happened. There was an investigation that was totally stonewalled. There was another investigation. And then one of the victims went public, which was a huge, no, no, you don't rat out your squadron mates, but she went public. Mm. And that's when the consequences, such as they were, really started to fall into place. But she was driven out of her squadron. Yeah. And I there. know that uh, in the in the military in general, I mean, I know Kirsten Gillibrand, a New York mm -hmm. senator from New York, she's yep. still working on issues and policies of 
punishing people who are guilty of sexual assault in the military. You know, yeah. she, that's really one of her, uh, one of her, her issues that she really right. has her, taken the lead on. Right. One of her arguments is that the traditional way of imposing military discipline is it just runs up the chain of command. And if the chain of command is, is complicit, well, that's not the place for that to happen. She wants a separate um, mechanism for dealing with that. And the military is very, very opposed. Yes. Yeah. It's nice to be able to be your own judge, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> your own judge and jury. Uh, you know, it's certainly uh, that kind of people don't give up that kind of power over their uh, own discipline very no. easily. So it's, no. it's a tough fight. It's and there was an incident fight. at Fort Hood in Texas, like yes. two or three years ago. Same thing. Woman was right. sexually harassed. She complained. Nothing happened. And she turned up dead. She yes. was killed. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a, this is a, a really toxic, uh, can be very toxic environment um, yeah. for women who, who want this kind of a, a career for themselves and service. So can you talk a little bit about lesbians in the military? You know, I've read some other books about women in this, in this time period uh, and the way that the military uh, integrates women into the institution sometimes there's a great deal of concern about sexuality and uh, promiscuity. So did you come across any of this with your, in your story? Um, this didn't come up um, in the direct story that I was telling, but certainly, you know, there, it is of historical importance. I mean, women and their bodies has always been an uncomfortable topic for, um, for, the established um, men in the military, women were always considered needed to be taken care of. So if a woman wanted to enlist, if she was 18, she was of legal age, she needed her parents' permission, whereas a man did not. Women had to be questioned about their sexual history and their promiscuity, whereas men did not. If a woman became pregnant, she was automatically discharged and her parents would be told why. So this was sort of the tone. And whereas um, homosexuality was traditionally reason for a dishonorable discharge from the military, as the number of women grew, the pushback grew in proportion and accusations of lesbianism were a very, very convenient cudgel for standing in the way of this progress. And there was one incident that I do um, discuss in the book um, in 1979, after the Navy started as another experiment, let's see what would happen if they start integrating women as crew members on ships. And there were just a couple of ships where this happened. And one of them was a missile tracking ship called the Norton Sound. And a year into the program, the Navy tried to discharge 19 of the 61 women on the ship on grounds of homosexuality. And that's a huge proportion of people in on a ship to be accused of this one thing. Um, and what would normally happen for men who were similarly accused is they would just sort of resign and you know go away. But these women sued, they pushed back, they weren't having it. And 15 of them had the charges dropped and another two more were acquitted. So it really was just, you know, just a bogus and you know clear attempt to just stop women from serving on ships and it didn't matter what people had to say to get that to happen it didn't matter if what they were saying was true it was just mm. just a, just a way to stop it yeah and so how about women of color do women of color kind of come through your research as well they really they really don't i mean i needed to keep a pretty narrow focus on the book because there were so many amazing stories that i would have never have finished um, and in the Navy at this time, I mean, even men of color, there were very few officers. There were some, but there were very few. So um, women of color don't really figure um, into the story, but I can give you some idea of how much more difficult it was for women of color than it was for white women to break down some of these barriers. Um, the first um, African-American female Coast Guard flight officer was named in 2005. The first African-American female Coast Guard helicopter pilot was named in 2010. And the first African-American Navy fighter jet pilot woman, 2020, was when she got that assignment. 
So that's an awfully long time to have to slog through and, you know, get those opportunities. Oh, wow. No, that's great. I mean, I really love the the structure of the book because it gives the history of women in naval aviation, but it also includes all these wonderful stories, all these personal accounts. So do you have a favorite of these wonderful stories? I think my favorite one, as I kind of alluded to before, is what Jane O'Day did when she was told she wasn't allowed to use the bathroom, because there were two bathrooms in the squadron in Road to Spain, and one door said officers and one door said men. So she decided, well, she was an officer. She was going into the one marked officers, and the stalls didn't have doors on them. So the first time she walked in on a couple of officers, the commanding officer quickly changed the signs to read men and women. Now, she also became the first pregnant military pilot. And not only didn't she quit, which is what her skipper assumed it was happened, she had the baby and then got a promotion. Now, her crewmates, on the other hand, um, listed the unborn baby as a half member of the crew, and they wanted her to name the baby Hercules after the C-130. Now, it turned out to be a girl, so that probably wouldn't have been the best idea. <laughs> That's great. I mean, I love the story about women painting flowers on their helmets. Mm-hmm. And I think what appeals to me about it is, I guess the assumption that I had is, is that these women are serious Navy pilots and they're going to fit in with the, you know, the guys in this very male-dominated institution and they just fly their freak flag mm-hmm. <laughs> painting these flowers on the helmet and i just th- i just really thought that was terrific that they embrace their um you know their individuality in an institution that isn't always so welcoming to that kind of thing right absolutely yeah so when, really, when, yeah yeah so Uh, What a great book and a great conversation. I want to thank Beverly Weintraub for joining me on the show. I enjoyed this discussion of the new book, Wings of Gold, the story of the first women naval aviators, published by Lions Press, a division of Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading.